real news. Welcome everyone to the Tori Says Show. I'm your host, Tori. Today's December 26, 2019. The day after Christmas, the day before I have to go and get deposed for Seth Rich. Um, I wonder if I can record my meeting. You know, I'm going to ask him. Because I'm just going to go by myself. I have nothing to give them. But I may ask them and say, yo, I'd like to record stuff. Uh, and then I'll share that with you, of course. Um, so there's a lot going on today uh, in the background. Uh, we see false flags. We see the media upset that North Korea did not launch a missile. But they gave us the next best thing, which is what? Ah, uh, a red alert that possibly there was something that was flying. Possibly we had to shoot it down. Possibly, possibly. Remember that time that a lot of people didn't talk about it, but our president was in the air and he was flying to the Far East. And then this missile came out of nowhere. But, you know, I digress. Remember that false missile alert? Yeah, I digress. You know, they were so into what gift will you get? You know, North Korea is going to give you a Christmas present of a missile flying. And he's like, well, maybe I'll just get a vase. That's a vessel. We determined where you host your little nefarious thing. Man, all those little clowns sitting in Perth, Australia right now <laughs> kind of hate me putting the spotlight on you. But hey, what's up? Because everyone knows exactly where you are. That's the thing, you guys. If I know it, you know the president knows it. So today, what I wanted to do was point out a few things. Uh, so that way it can help you navigate the news. Unfortunately, we need personal navigators to understand what's really going on, what's really being said. But let me give you a little bit of insight. When you're a group of bad, bad people, you need to know every single name and every single person on your team. You need a list of their names. You need a list of the insurance that you may have against them. You need a list of everything. You need to know who's doing what at what time. There needs to be coordination. That's, that's the only way it works because you want to cover your butt when things go south. You want to see who's the throwaway, which means, you know, expendable. And you need to see what insurance you have to cover yourself. So let's pretend, you guys, that their goal is, um, let's find a goal. Um, their goal is to remove um, a vase from a museum that's highly reinforced to protect that vase. So the vase, they want to steal. The bad guys want to steal it because it has ultimate power. The good guys want to make sure they could destroy it so they can't have it or hide it so they can't have it. Now there's two teams, the good guys and the bad guys. The bad guys will know every single person. They will try to buy out the guard. They will try to get through to the power company and turn the power off so no alarms go off, right? Just 
so intricate, such a big web of people. They'll have people phoning in from the other side of the planet to distract someone, cell phone, tell, you name it, they'll think of everything, right? So will the good guys. The bad guys will also know every single player, Joey, you know, Bob, Sally, Hillary, you know, Owen, John, James, Kevin, Eric, Tony, Myra. So they'll know everybody because they need to know where everyone is. Now let's switch over to the good guys. The good guys know that they need to either break the vase, steal it so they can hide it, so they can't get a hold of it, or secure it in some form or fashion. The good guys say, we need to get this done. The good guys will have a team of 100 different teams. Each team may not even know the other one exists. Because, see, when you don't know the other person exists, there's no link to you, so it doesn't compromise the mission. For example, let's pretend I'm working hard to ensure to uncover the deep state. There could be a guy sitting in Washington, D.C. with the same mission. There could be a retired guy up in Connecticut doing the same thing. There could be a brother and sister out in California doing the same thing. There could be some guy in Antarctica in a laboratory doing the same thing. We're all striving for the same goal. But here's the thing. We don't know each other exist. So let's pretend I get busted. Does that compromise the mission? No. Because I can't give them communications for the brother and sister in California, the dude up in Connecticut, or the guy in in Antarctica. Because I don't know them. I don't even know they exist. So the mission continues. But the problem with the swamp is they don't work like that. So if the good guys had to get the vase, everyone would try with their own team or themselves to complete the mission. doesn't matter who gets credit, complete the mission. So let's pretend I get to the vase because... You know, while the bad people were working on disarming the alarms, I, you know, snuck in the day before and hid myself in a box in the toilet, right? So I had access to it faster than anyone. But when I get there, to my surprise, the vase is broken or the vase is gone. Now, I know for a fact the bad guys don't have it because I could see them trying to come and get it. So the mission is accomplished and I'm happy. They don't see it there. What do they do? They start a new mission all together to figure out who got the vase. Ah, And then they see me there. It's her. Let's go for her. They come for me, but I don't have the vase. I don't even know who has it. You see, the way good guys work is, is that they don't need insurance on each other. They don't even need to know each other. They don't even need to know that the other one exists. They just do. Because good doesn't need applause. Good doesn't need insurance. Good doesn't need anything but accomplishment of what? Good. That's basically what good does. So this is why they're losing. Because somewhere there's going to be a loose end. Ever watch, you know, a movie where they're like, well, they must have screwed up somewhere, you know, the, the bank robber is always going to leave some form of clue and we're going to catch him. You can't be too perfect. 
This is exactly what's happening. And you would say, it feels so overwhelming. They have the media. They have the music. They have the TVs. They have our movie theaters. They have our cartoons. I mean, they're telling you about spies in disguise. Such a coincidence. Disguises. How are we going to win? <laughs> the thing is, we've already won. So we have won this war. But, you know, when you win a war, there's always a continuation of battle. And that battle is something that is kind of like a aftershock in an earthquake. And, you know, that's one thing that generals today still analyze, still try to parse through and understand. And, you know, that strategy, that strategy of winning this war is one that has been known for centuries and centuries. And that's the strategy of Alexander the Great. See, he had five key genius components. If you can only master the two, you win. The first key rule of taking on a task to win a battle or win a war is to see, to have multiple perspectives. Even if you're given a square peg to fit in a round hole, you need to figure out a way to see it in such a fashion that you can make that square fit. See it from every angle, from every degree, in every dimension, and in every type of realm you can imagine, there's going to be a solution. There is never a problem without a solution, ever. Ever. And, you know, no matter how big the problem looks, it's always solvable. And that's the beauty of infinite numbers. They always come back on themselves. They're continuous. And like I said, language what you hear right now in your ears with me speaking in this language is simply numbers, math. It's all mathematical. So the first thing that you have to do is be able to see the problem from all angles. The second one is obviously what? To be able to do what? Use your sources. But how do you use your sources without getting compromised? The way you do it is by using symbols. Symbols is what makes it great. Now listen to this clip, and then let's talk about symbols. Late history to serve their own purpose. Don't forget, when that Stanford law professor attempted to make fun of and prove a point about monarchy by evoking the name of the president's child, the media turned it around to somehow make it Melania Trump's fault when she came out to defend her son. The first lady tweeting, quote, a minor child deserves privacy and should be kept out of politics. Pamela Carlin, you should be ashamed that you're very angry and obviously biased public pandering and using a child to do it. They're accusing, you see, the boy's mother of making too much of this while lashing out at conservatives whom they say are trying to seize the moment. The one professor's joke about President Trump's son was obviously something you saw Matt Gates seize on, come at her very hard for. Republicans, I think, are going to try to make that a, uh, a viral moment. What we see now are Republicans seizing on a key moment, calling on Democrats to essentially criticize this professor. Calculate the faux outrage when they get anything to sink their teeth into. They love to make more of it than it's worth. And, of course, they're not concerned about Barron Trump. Nah. All right. Let's not forget who started this. For the record, let's play it again, guys. Let's do it. And I'll just give you one example that shows you the difference between him and a king. 
which is the Constitution says there can be no titles of nobility. So while the president can name his son Baron, he can't make him a Baron. I, for one, am very glad the First Lady called them all out. As a mother, it was the right thing for her to do. And I, for one, am glad for every conservative that calls this professor out, but I am disappointed the left hasn't stepped up to the plate. Because this is one in which we should all agree a child doesn't deserve to be dragged into this political arena. It's wrong. It's mean. And it shows you the depths to which they really are willing to go to promote their new American Revolution, anti-monarchy, theme du jour. Here's Nancy Pelosi on with her whole king analogy again once. So before we get into it, symbolism. So children used to symbolize something you never involved. You never weaponize a child ever to gain advantage in any situation. You do not cause harm to a child. They are off limits. Now, we spoke about children yesterday. The symbolism of a child was always sacred. Sacred to those that are kind, that are good-hearted, and that understand what values and morals are. To those that lack moral grounds and are completely immoral and see humans as commodities or are just plain evil. Will weaponize a child. They will exploit situations of a child. Like, for example, Baron Trump is the son of the president, so we can trash him too because he's the president's son. We don't like the president, so all his children, even the ones that are complete minors, are totally game. We will put him on the news. We will drag him through the mud because it's okay. Symbolism. The child. The child is a symbol that maintains our moral compass. And the child represents innocence. Represents the beginning of life. Represents everything humankind should stand for. So listen to how Pelosi tries to demoralize that value of innocence, of the initiation of life, of love, of just being human, because he's supposedly trying to be a king. No. He's just smarter than you, he's better than you, and he's honest. And when I say, well, you know, he was in real estate, not so honest, okay. When we say honest, let's say, true to the moral values that any human should hold. Having just fought a war of independence, they specifically feared the prospect of a king president corrupted by foreign influence. Okay, just to be clear, we know who has fallen victim to foreign influence, the Democrats themselves. Vladimir Putin had one goal, divide and conquer, undermine the integrity of the great American election system, and that he sure did. Okay, Trish, I'm going to stop you right there. Because he didn't. He really doesn't care. He's minding his own business. He doesn't need to divide America to conquer. What he's doing is covering his tushy. And the thing is, he's in control. <laughs> and that's something people don't seem to understand. There was a, um, an interview Oliver Stone conducted with Putin. You can find all of it for free on YouTube. Uh, he did it through Showtime, and I'm going to play a specific clip where it clearly depicts how he feels about his nation in comparison to the United States of America and, in general, the whole world, except 
for China. Tonight, because uh, two terms are only allowed, you become the prime minister. Well, you worked hard when you were prime minister too. Я работал много и и в целом и в целом весьма успешно. Но президентом России был другой человек. И я знаю, как у нас в стране, как за рубежом на это время оценивали. Должен вам сказать, что президент Медведев полностью и самостоятельно исполнял все свои обязанности. Президентом в стране может быть только один человек, тот, кто избран народом. He says, only one person can be president of the country, and that's the person who is elected by the people. And in 2012, you run for president, and you win by 63%? Yeah, you're right. Three times president, five assassination attempts, I'm told. Not as much as Castro, who I've interviewed. I think he must have had 50, but uh, there's a legitimate five I've heard about. He said, yes, I've talked to Castro about this, and he said to me, do you know why I'm still alive? I asked him why, and he said, because I was always the one to deal with my security personally. Вот я делаю свою работу, а сотрудники I do my job and the security officers do theirs. На безопасности делают свое. До сих пор у них это все. And they are still performing quite successfully. And they've done a great job. I trust them. always the first mode of assassination. You try to get inside the security of the of the president. So the first mode of assassination you try to get into the security of the president. Uh, you need to understand the stenographic messages that are coming through here via Oliver Stone. And it makes sense as to why there was one airing and it quickly, quickly got buried. Not a lot of people wanted to listen to this interview. Yes, I know that. Do you know what they say among the Russian people? They say that those who are destined to be hanged are not going to drown. <laughs> what is your fate, sir? Have you, do you know? Only God knows our destiny, yours and mine. To die in bed, baby. One day this is going to happen to each and every one of us. The question is, what will we have accomplished by then in this transient world and whether we have enjoyed our life? You've had a tough day. It's been a while. This is from February 2016 at the Kremlin at 9.30 p.m. Remember, this interview was done during the presidential election year. Nice to see you. Прошло какое-то время, очень рад видеть вас. I think uh, last June was the, uh, was the last time I saw you. So this interview was in parts. So June 2015 is when he last saw Vladimir Putin. That's Oliver Stone. You missed me? <laughs> he said I cried every now and then, but we're here, finally. I'm sure you cried about other things. Uh, Excuse me, I just fell asleep upstairs. Uh, I caught up on my jet lag. I envy you, he said. 
working, I met my colleagues. We talked about domestic policies and security, economic issues. I talked with the Minister of Finance. I also talked with my assistants for economic matters. So that's about it. That's what I did. I met with the Speaker of the Parliament, Defense Minister, also Minister of the Interior. Holy cow. Well, you didn't have a cabinet meeting then, did you? No, not today. Was this National Security Council kind of meeting? Yes, exactly. Many years ago, I put in place a small group of people. Compromising of the heads of secret services and security agencies, and we call it the meeting of the Security Council in Russia. A crisis or anything? No, it's a regular meeting. It happens once a week. I'm curious, because we are normally scheduled at 3 o'clock, and it's 6 hours and 40 minutes later. He said we were scheduled at 3 o'clock to have this meeting, but, uh, you know, we're here six hours later. He said, I knew that you'd have to have some rest and have some sleep. <laughs> no, but I'm saying there's always, there are crises that come up, but there are things that aren't scheduled. He said, no, there wasn't any crisis, just work as usual. But one thing entails another thing. It's like a chain of events. When you plan a meeting for 10 minutes, but with a question after question, 10 minutes turns into an hour. And it's difficult to put an end to this chain of events. To my bigger question, because my producer who's here, Fernando, we were talking about you earlier. You said uh, you are an excellent CEO, uh, Chief Executive Officer. Huh. Very interesting word. We were talking about it, and, you know, you had said that you're an excellent CEO, a Chief Executive Officer. Of, your, of a company. Russia is your company. You kick the tires, you deal with these problems, and you try to solve them on the spot. No, no. Yes, that's the case. Let's say the problem is this, and you go into the detail here, and the detail sometimes gets smaller, and you do a micro detail, and the micro detail has another micro detail, and before you know it, you've lost the forest for the trees, as they say. That can be very irritating. You could probably go to bed at night not having solved some of these things, and it really drives you nuts. It's not about unresolved issues. It's about the very process of resolving those issues. I try to make it more creative. Just imagine a painter who's working at dinner, and he just quits his picture for his dinner. But that's not how it happens. The painter tries to complete something, and only after he's ready, he gets some rest. Yes, I have the sense of completion. I'm not trying to compare myself to a creative professional. But the search for answers is similar in the process to what creative professionals do. Which brings us to the... A large problem, which is he's been doing this as a president, prime minister, and now president again for 15 years. I'm sure he knows the story of Ronald Reagan, one of the most admired presidents by conservatives in my country. He was famous uh, for sticking to his schedule, which required him on most nights to come home in the White House by 6 o'clock and have an early supper and watch TV with his wife. He is a happy man, very well organized, and no doubt that was a great achievement of his. He was a smiley man. He was a great greeter and meeter. 
He was very happy uh, eating jelly beans and telling a good joke. So Reagan was a big believer in delegating authority to everyone around him. Well, we all know that Reagan was actually a no-term president, and Bush Sr. was. I'm just trying to make that example because it's another way of living. You need to address two issues. You have to find the right people, and then you have to delegate authority to them. You're doing it the hard way. Well, probably, and yet I understand it, and it's something I aspire to do. But there's a great difference between us. Reagan was ahead of the United States, and that, as it may be, were not comparable to those that we were facing in Russia. At the end of the 90s and the beginning of 2000, Reagan would disagree. He would say the country America was broke and that he, we needed to be fixed and it was morning in America again and it was his job to bring in positive energy and he did a pretty good job of making that feeling it's a feeling, it's an illusion almost being broke and actually being broke are two entirely different things he says <laughs> well, uh, actually some people would argue that Reagan made America more broke because the debt grew enormously. Yes, certainly. Today, what is it, 18 trillion? Russia's 12%. 18 trillion U.S. and about 1 trillion Russia. He says it's important to remember the share of GDP. In the U.S., the debt share is compared to the GDP, and that's at 100%. Our debt is minimum 12 to 13%, but at the same time, we have a higher level of reserves. We have $360 billion, the reserves of our central bank. The government... Hold on. Uh, this is like the key important part of this interview that you need to understand. This is where the power lies for Putin, so you can understand how they try to make him look like the enemy, because when we get into George Soros, you'll understand why this interview is key. Uh, well, uh, actually, some people would argue that Reagan made America more broke, because the debt grew enormously. I forgot. So they're discussing the debt of the United States. He's like, yeah, you have $18 trillion in debt. And this is at the time of 2016, February 2016, where Putin already knew the numbers as a good, as he says, manager or CEO of his company, Russia. He knew the debt of his competitors and the debt of the United States is 18 trillion. And he said, you know what? It goes with your GDP, right? So he's like, our GDP is 12%. So our assumed or alleged debt is only 12% of our GDP. The U.S. is way above 100% of their GDP. And about 1 trillion Russia. So he says our debt is at, you know, 12% per se. It's like a formulated debt that the country has among its 
agencies. So it's like Department of Defense, we've lent you money, you need to do this. Department of Interior, lent you money, do this. Not external debt. Listen to why. He says we have considerably higher level of reserves. There's $360 billion, the reserves of the Russian Central Bank. And the government also has two more reserve funds, $80 billion and another $70 billion in reserve. Out of which we fund this small budget deficit that we have. Are you getting that? So Russia has almost half a trillion dollars in liquid reserves where they fund the deficits they have. Or it could be a deficit from a nation owing them in trade. It could be a deficit, you know, to different divisions of Russia. They are actually, if you if you look at it from a company white paper perspective, and white papers are like, you know, what they publish, um, companies publish, so they can attract investors and it's to their board members, right? It's basically, right? So if you actually were going to take a look at the white papers of each uh, country and handle it like a company, Russia's at the top. Like China's super in debt. They're, they're super screwed right now. So they wouldn't be a good, but they would be a hold, right? Hold to sell. If you were like, you know, an institutional investor, you would either hold or sell. America would be a hold right now when before it was a sell. Russia's a definite buy the minute it's low. Uh, I mean, you can't lose out when you've got half a trillion dollars in liquid reserves and your debt, your supposed debt is like one trillion, which is only like 12% of your actual growth. So it's like saying 12% of your um, profit is your debt. Let's just say it like that because they're in surplus. So you would say, no, 12% of your revenue is your debt, um, if that helps you understand it better. <laughs> the food prices went up 20% in 2015 and uh, inflation was running at 13%. Yeah, he said 12.9%. 12.9%. Okay. Okay. What is the Russian Central Bank about? What is that doing? The Central Bank is adhering to a, various, a very balanced monetary policy. And it meets the understanding of international financial organizations, including the IMF. I thought you had nothing outstanding. You had no debts to the IMF, I'm told. He said no debts. I'm talking about our debt right now. No debts to the IMF. Incidentally, Russia not only paid back its debt to the IMF, we also paid back the debts of all the former Soviet republics including Ukraine's debt, equal to $16 billion. And I'm talking about a monetary policy that reflects to work with the IMF. Guys, did you hear that? $16 billion of debt that the Ukraine had, Russia paid off. Okay, let's just get that right. He said, we're in contact with, you know, that bird woman, Madame Lagarde, the big bully, and other colleagues from the IMF. We inform them about what we're doing. We listen to their recommendations. And I know full well the leadership of the IMF gives a good assessment to the policy of the Central Bank of Russia. 
Their assessment is positive. Uh, you know, you, you still talk as if the IMF is a partner of Russia. You act as if Wall Street wants Russia to succeed, and I question that. And I would ask you, is, is Wall Street actively working to destroy the Russian economy in the interest of the United States? I'm not talking about Wall Street right now. If we talk about the administration of the United States, then certainly the U.S. administration has been viewing, especially recently, Russia as a rival. Pretty interesting interview, huh, guys? When you put it in perspective. That is the strand. That is the throne of the Tsar and the throne yeah. for the Tsarina and also for the Dowager Empress. Yeah. You know, they say you want to be Tsar. This is, uh, you know, you're the new Tsar. This is all, they put magazine covers out there. You laugh, right? They like that idea and that's probably why they say that. They can't get rid of all these old stereotypes. But you allowed uh, Charlie Rose to make a point, to, he said, you have all the power, you can do what you want. He made that very clear, and then, because that's the way many Americans think, that there's no system here. And uh, you didn't correct him. He said the question is not about having a lot of power. It's about using the power that you do have the right way. Well, then you should shoot the interpreter, too, because... You, was it you? No, he, you he, I don't think he understood the question that Rose was leading him to. I, I, in other words, in English, it sounded like he was the czar, and he took it for granted that he was czar. Some have called you a czar. So what? You know, people call me different names. Does the name fit? No, no. He says he was probably trying to argue or incite one, but I don't want to argue with him. He says you're so rational on every time you're asking questions. Do you ever like have a day, like a bad day? Is that right? I'm not a woman, so I don't have bad days, he says. <laughs> oh my gosh. Now you're going to insult 50% of the American public <laughs> the way they're going to take it. I'm not trying to insult anyone. That's just the nature of things. So a woman to you is, uh, tends to be more emotional. You don't want to have your emotions ever cut in and control your reasoning. There are certain natural cycles, which men probably have as well, just less manifested, and we're all human beings, it's normal. So tell me what you think of that. And now that you've heard Putin kind of uh, unplugged, right? kind of like MTV unplugged, um, I want you to listen to this interview carefully. It is with George Soros talking about Russia as a mafia state. Hello and welcome to the France 24 interview. Our guest today is George Soros, the well-known financier, philanthropist, the author of uh, many books. The latest one is The Tragedy of the European Union. Welcome to the show, Mr. Soros. I want to begin with your reaction to the midterm elections in the U.S. Uh, you've been 
a funder of uh, the Democrats for many years. What's your reaction to the... Well, uh, frankly, the it's uh, uh, rather shocking for me because it's uh, much worse uh, than I expected. And uh, uh, it makes me uh, reflect. And, and I, uh, at the moment, I'm uh, confused. You're confused. Do you think uh, Obama is going to be a lame duck president for the remaining two years? There's no other way? Uh, well, uh, he will rule mainly by executive uh, order, which is I'm very pleased because I think uh, migration is an issue that needs to be attended to. Uh, uh, but how the corporation will work with the uh, Republicans, in a way, I, I hope uh, that uh, something can actually be accomplished uh, also on the legislative side. Okay. Uh, last question on this issue. Are you disappointed, like many Democrats, by Barack Obama? I am actually, uh, let's say, more supportive of Obama than uh, most uh, Democrats are, uh, which is not necessarily saying a lot. Okay. Uh, I want to get to uh, the issue of uh, Russia. Uh, you wrote a, a very powerful uh, piece in the New York Review of Books. Uh, you say, among other things, I'm just going to quote you, Europe is facing a challenge from Russia to its very existence. Neither the European leaders nor their citizens are fully aware of this challenge. Aren't you overreacting? No, I'm, I, I think that the uh, European public is underreacting. And that's why I'm trying to explain to them uh, the real uh, danger uh, that uh, uh, Russia represents, which is actually shocking because uh, there's nothing much attractive about uh, Putin regime. Uh, it is what I call a, a mafia state. Uh, and yet, uh, it is, uh, first of all, very skillful and represents a military threat uh, because uh, uh, Europe is uh, not very well situated to defend itself. And even more shockingly, uh, there are imitators. There are others in Europe that look to Russia as a role model. And that is where I think there's some, it shows that there's something fundamentally wrong and broken in the European Union. We have to recognize that the Union itself, which is a, a, a noble, uh, well-intended experiment in international governance, has failed and has not delivered uh, what it promised. And there's such degree of disappointment that even, uh, even Russia can offer uh, an alternative. Who is looking up at Russia in Europe? Who do you have in mind? You say others are uh, kind of trying to emulate what Putin is doing. Well, uh, there is uh, uh, Orban in Hungary has uh, publicly declared uh, that he regards uh, Putin his role model. And uh, there are others in neighboring countries, uh, there's uh, a Farange in, uh, in UKIP, 
uh, who uh, says similar things. And uh, uh, Marie Le Pen in France. Uh, and uh, there are a lot of people in Germany who uh, find the attraction, find the idea of closer cooperation with, uh, with, with uh, Russia rather attractive. But when you say existential threats, the, the very definition of that is that the existence of the EU is threatened by Vladimir Putin. Do you mean militarily, ideologically? What exactly do you mean? Exactly both. Uh, militarily, do you think hand, Russia could wage war and win against the European Union? Well, it's, uh, Russia is waging war in Ukraine. And if he... Russia is waging war in Ukraine. This is 2014. This is in 2014 after the Obama administration had already penetrated the Ukraine. Remember, February 2014, we had Igor Pasternak out in the Ukraine with his fake blimp funneling money and supposedly helping. And we had uh, the loyalists to Russia because Russia had just paid off all their debt to the IMF. And one might see it as a way that they were coaxing them, like saying, look, we paid off $16 billion of your debt. Uh, you know, you could be like Hong Kong, but don't go with the EU because there's so many natural reserves and we have a deep-seated history. And they're trying to gut your church. Our churches, like, stick with us. And this is why Ukraine has these problems. They're torn. They, they are enamored by the idea of globalization and open borders from the EU. But on the other hand, they want their independence but they never knew how to maintain that independence after being so dependent on a structure like the USSR. And this is why Crimea today is thriving, because they're like Hong Kong. What Hong Kong is to China is what Crimea is to Russia, but Russia is not a communist nation. So, okay, not a very good example, but I'm trying to create a simile so you understand. It's kind of like Guam and the United... No, that's not good either, because Guam isn't that independent. So... Anyway, I digress. The bottom line is, here's where George Soros on France 24 is making the argument that Russia is an enemy and that Russia is penetrating both militarily and, again, socially, right? The culture thing. Listen carefully to this. You succeed in Ukraine uh, where you have got the Ukrainian people who believe in, in Europe, they want to be European and they are willing to actually uh, 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 sacrifice their lives if necessary. They did that in Maidan. So th there is a group of people, a, a nation of 42 million, which of course is not fully united, but is now determined to res resist uh, Russian domination. He told you himself, they want open borders, they want the European, they want what they were selling, right? And did they, though? Did they, though? Because remember, their politicians, when they were approached by the European Union, were offered money, truckloads of money that lined their pockets, that these oligarchs took. It was all done with dirty, dirty, dirty money. And then that money was used by their media, which then enarmored them, just like our mainstream media. Enarmored us, oh, look, this is beautiful. Don't you want this? Look at all these people hugging. But then there's this nefarious side of things. Um, 
on that, I wanted to say just how things so nefarious can be put in such a positive spin. So I was watching a YouTube original movie called The Thinning. It was so freaky, not because of the nefarious and horrific, um, you know, thoughts of, you know, depopulation in that sense, but because it looked like something that's totally going to happen and could be one of those things because there's, um, I mean, the past always tells you the future. So it was bizarre because what they were doing is that they were, they decided that they, the way that they will depopulate is not to regulate how many children, but they had like this really weird video. And you know what? During the top of the hour, I will try to get that movie up and put it to that point where it played the clip to children that were sacrificing themselves after a test. Now, those of you that may not have YouTube Premium, you can sign up for free and just watch that and then, like, you know, get rid of it. It is one of the most important, I think, um, movies slash, I want to say documentaries in the future, of exactly how horrific the state of our moral health as humans on this planet is. It needs to be helped to defend itself. Do you think this is the key battleground? If Putin wins, quote-unquote, in Ukraine? It will, it will have two consequences. One is uh, take the Baltic states, where you also have uh, large uh, Russian populations concentrated, uh, could, uh, could be the next uh, stop, and that would be a direct uh, threat against NATO. And there Europe will be much... Uh, less well situated uh, to defend itself. Uh, so uh, that's the military threat. And then the other one is the ideological threat, which is the one that I find particularly shocking. Before he goes into that, so did you hear him? So if Putin wins the elections, like, you know, if he wins, then what? And what elections is he talking about? He's talking about the Ukrainian elections. You know, the ones that Obama signed an order to help usher? The one where Obama sent 1,200 U.S. taxpayer-funded people out to the Ukraine to help them do elections, and then a couple hundred that are permanent staff there to help usher their elections. Are you seeing this now? Can you see it a little bit more clear? Because now in retrospect, watching this interview from 2014, with what you've been learning from me and, you know, obviously on a delay from the mainstream media, I hope this is making sense for you because uh, Putin is putting forward an ideology of nationalism. Is he a fascist? No, he's uh, something uh, different. Uh, he's, uh, it, it, there is uh, a lot of resentment in Russia uh, among Russian people for the European Union not being uh, helpful enough when the Soviet system collapsed. Okay, so let's talk about this for a second. So that's basically it. So Putin is not a, a fascist, uh, but he's promoting nationalism, which is so bad. You cannot be proud of where you're from. And he was promoting nationalism to the Ukrainians. You have, you are Ukraine. You are not EU. You should stick to the Ukraine. You should be proud of your roots. And 
that is where the dichotomy, this is how we stole, we helped globally now we're saying, not just the United States, but we played a very big role because we funded it. Remember, there's an executive order. Remember, there's an act. Remember, that was signed in April of 2014. Remember, that is at the time that Tag Romney, Paul Pelosi, you know, Hunter Biden, Kerry, and a bunch of other kids and actual senators and congresspeople that had interest and their feet and hands and fingers and anything and toes in the Ukraine, manipulating every single aspect of it, getting all the 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 oligarchs and all the nefarious people on their team to do what? Team globalism, team one nation team new world order that is imperative for the advancement of society, right? That's basically how they sold uh, what they were, you know, saying. And so Putin was pushing the be proud to be Ukrainian, be proud to be independent. I will work with you. Crimea voted 98%. See, they didn't penetrate Crimea. And even though people are saying annexation, it's not an annexation by force. These people voted, they literally vote. 98% said, no, we don't want Europe. We want to be proud of who we are. We want our heritage. We don't want to be bombarded with a bunch of people from the Middle East. We want to be independent. We want to dictate our own. We don't want to have to succumb to the laws of the European Union set by people we don't elect, set by people we don't see, and laws that are made every day, but no one knows who's making them. I think not. And they took a pass. The Ukraine was overwhelmed with money. Dirty, funneled, taxpayer dollar money. And George Soros is simply the public-facing laundromat keeper. That is all he is. He's got the washing machines and the know-hows. He's the guy that gives you coins to put your laundry in his machine, and then he delivers it to where it needs to go so everyone is happy, you know, and the plan comes to fruition. And here he is pushing his propaganda on French TV as the elections are approaching in 2015 for the Ukraine. Uh, it's a resurgent nationalism. Actually, there are some similarities uh, to the interwar period in, in, in Germany, where there was a lot of resentment because of the reparations payment. Oh, but the end result of that resentment was Hitler. Yeah, yeah. So here's the thing. Uh, now they want to equate him to Hitler. Why? Because the nations that were broken after the USSR were left to fend for themselves. Russia was in spiraling debt. The IMF was coming to take everything. The IMF was like, Lithuania, you want help? You need me. And Russia was like, hold on, let's get our ducks in a row. We have the Chechnyans coming in. We've got war on all fronts. We don't have a structured government. We need to fix this. Be patient. They were like, no, but we're hungry. And the Europeans did that on purpose. Because when you're desperate, it doesn't matter what hand you have when you're in the pit. You just want to get out of the pit. And that hand could be the devil's hand for all you know. But as long as you're out of the because you can't see it, it could look like a beautiful hand, and then you put your hand out, they pull you out, and they look beautiful, and then once they turn around, you're like, whoa, that's the devil. He just pulled me out of the, the pit, though, so he can't be that bad, can he, right? And you think something similar? I mean, what is in Vladimir Putin's head? What does he want to do? Does he want 
to recreate a kind of Soviet Union. We know he has said that when the Soviet Union disappeared, it was the saddest day of his life. Yeah. Do you think that's what he has in mind, or is it more he, trying to bargain with the West some other things? Well, one can speculate about, uh, about Putin. But you know uh, about speculating. <laughs> well, uh, he does. Yeah, he's a speculator. So after the break, we're going to get into how, who is George Soros, what he is, and how he's not the puppet master. He's simply one of the strings that pull the marionettes, which is, and one of the marionettes are the Democrats and some Republicans in our nation. So we'll be deconstructing that and understanding George Soros better, because I see people talking like as if Soros is a mastermind. He's not. He's an opportunist, and he's the laundromat keeper. He washes all the money, all of it. And he distributes all that money after, you know, he gives you the quarters, you put it in, and he's like, I'll take care of it. That's the guy. He's the guy that says, don't worry about it. I'll take care of it. Just give it to me. And takes his cut, too. <laughs> it's all about interest. It's all about your money. And this is why we're in debt, because we've been funding things like this. I'll see you all right after this break. Welcome back, everyone, to the Tory Says Show. I'm your host, Tory. Believe it or not, I was able to get that clip. Um, so that'll be awesome. Uh, before anything, I just want to tell you guys that today we're just going to be breaking down Soros. I'm going to show you how throughout time he's been telling you who he is. So when you hear the mainstream media, and all, oh my gosh, George Soros is indeed like a general, right? Which is, but he's like a one star. <laughs> he's like a one star. You know, there's other stars above him, way above him, like superstars, like suns and solar system stars. He's the bottom of the marionette string area. So if you picture a puppet master, there's the dude, right? So you can say head, neck, arm, fingers, right? And then you have the little contraption, and then there's like strings. Okay, so George Soros is part of the contraption and the strings. Because in order to make the puppets move, to make everything move together and pull the right strings, uh, we use the illusion of money. They have an arm and, and, and taught us that money is what makes the world go round. It's all a show. It's all an illusion. And he is the one that takes everybody's money, all the nations, puts it in a washing machine, right, and then spits it out where it needs to be. Protest, media, you know, movies, uh, uh, you know, b buying people off, uh, oligarchs, and you know, anything you want, prime ministers, senators, congresspersons, senators, 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 just pays them all off. Lawyers, judges, you know, because it used to be that drugs and human trafficking and child trafficking were the top currency. I mean, George Bush 
Sr. ran one of the biggest drug operations on this planet. From opium to, to cocaine, you know, MENA was the point that the U.S. was down. It was like boom. And in 1999, in exactly actually 2000, the chips were called in. The U.S. was bankrupt. The people were going to revolt. And then 9-11 happened. And so suddenly, right as we had all the power, the people had all the power to revolt, all the power to go against everything that screamed to them was wrong, 9-11 happened. And you know, they bank on the fact that we have morals. They bank on the fact that we have a heart, that we, that we feel, and that we are compassionate because they're not. And they use that beautiful trait, that innate, you know, human trait against us. Because we cannot fathom harming innocence. We cannot fathom causing harm to our neighbor to benefit ourselves. No, but wait, we can fathom it. Because there's a lot of people that step on each other's necks. I'm sure all of you at some point at work had this backstab and they're like, look, man, it's not personal. I just need that promotion and... You're in the way. So if you get fired in the process and can't feed your kids, really don't care. Uh, so there are people like that because, unfortunately, that prodigal son is just the, 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 you're the prodigal son version with a primordial sin at some point. That is embedded in your DNA and, you know, it needs to be expelled by, just like the way we expel through time, our telomeres. That's a whole other conversation. So before we get into it, I wanted to play that clip for you so you can understand how dehumanization is a reality. So uh, just to tell you, the, the whole idea of this show is, is that, uh, you know, um, well, it actually tells you, but this scene is being played to first graders. So the thinning or depopulation, the process that they have starts at first grade and ends at 12th grade. You're going to be like, what? Yep, children. Listen. Good morning, class. Good morning, Michael. Now, before we begin, I'm going to show you a really special video before you take your first test, okay? This is planet Earth, our home. See how happy she is. Well, she wasn't always so happy. You see, not so long ago, the Earth wasn't feeling so well. First, she got too hot. <laughs> then, the ocean started to rise, leaving less room on the land for Earth's friends. And with less land, and more and more people, there was just not enough room for everybody. Luckily, boys and girls from all over the world got together and came up with some very cool ways to eliminate 5% of their population annually. You okay, Miss Cole? Everything all right? Because if you are not up for it, we can have someone else come down here. No, yeah, I'm fine. Give me a minute. 
some places say goodbye to their oldest. Others only let mommies and daddies have one baby. In America, what if only the smartest boys and girls got to live here? That way, there's enough to go around. And America could be the best country again. Isn't that neat? Now all kids from first grade till 12th grade get to take the 10, 2, 4, 1 test to help planet Earth feel great. And the kids applaud. So what people uh, watching this film, people had the impression that, you know, the lowest 5% scores, they would kill off the kids. Like they were taken to be disposed of, that they die. But in the end, you realize that they don't die. They actually take them to some underground place to be slaves. And during this film, it was discovered that as long as you were rich and as long as you had power, no matter even if you sucked at the test, you would still, you know, pass no matter what, even if you failed. And that was it. And it's like, guys, this can indeed be a reality. But you would have to be demoralized to the position where you would think that humans are commodities. Uh, messages throughout the show was that you need to contribute to society, which is, which is something that we do want. We don't need people to leech off of us. But this is the plan. Going forward into the future, here's how it happens. If President Trump wasn't president, if he wasn't, we would all be dependent on each other. We would have a socialist government that would collapse in 10 years. So by 2032, there would have been a total collapse in the system. And a new one would have to come up. People would be tired of being in poverty and in debt and not being able to find jobs. And a new form of communism would rise. A an order of corporations creating situations to alleviate it where people would realize, why do I have to pay for you, loser, who doesn't want to work or who can't learn or you're just too stupid? Only smart people should be able to live because it's all about our survival as human beings. Out into the galaxy, we have to represent ourselves correctly. We can't have you, the idiot, that you know doesn't really contribute. Yeah, you may be good at art, but you suck at math. So you need to go. And so then they train people to decide, yeah, you know what? We'll test them. Stupidest kids get knocked off every year. So for every single year that your child goes to public school, they take a test. They fail it. They have one of the lowest scores, like the 5% at their school. They get eliminated. I mean, do you think that that's far-fetched? I mean, already we have the liberals calling people who are compassionate, who are hardworking, who want a better America, racist, disgusting. They dehumanize them. They take mallets to their face. They throw cement at their heads, right? Because they're not acceptable. Those are the people that they wanted to condition the whole world into. And you know who helped with that? George Soros. And you know, they kind of talked about it a little bit. You know, politics. I'm going to take you back in time. I think I want to start with a 2007 talk with um, someone called Eric Schmidt. He's like the Google co-founder, you know, right after I wrote that article with Eric Braverman. Suddenly Google ads won't allow me to advertise on my site. So the money that my site was making to keep itself up, well, barely, because we know Google ads pays you like uh, one hundredth of a penny for every view. You know, they terminated that because they don't like it when you speak up. 
So here is a talk at Google between George Soros and Eric Schmidt talking politics. And it will blow your mind, the comfortability, 2007, as Obama was starting to make his debut. My view of Mr. Soros is that he is one of the most important people in the world today in terms of the impact that he's had. Um, he grew up in Eastern Europe where his, in my reading of your background, your understanding of the world was much shaped by what you saw by the Nazis and by socialism and the fascism of the time. Um, but because he's a clever guy, he eventually escaped and went to London where he became quite the financial wizard. And for a few decades, George managed to invent a whole new industry, which we generally know now as financial, financial derivatives, uh, currency trading, and things like that. My first meeting with you was actually at the World Economic Forum about 10 years ago, and I happened to go from there to Malaysia, where I happened to meet with the Prime Minister of Malaysia, who spent a great deal of time complaining about you. And I thought, wow, a dictator really hates George Soros. Pretty interesting. Um, so a few years later, we had dinner, and I asked uh, George, what kind of an impact can you have on the world? And I didn't quite understand, because I was, I guess, stupid or something, how, how much impact he'd already had. In history, as it is fully understood, people will understand that the financial support and the structural support that he and his organization, in their first attempts at philanthropy, helped the Polish Solidarity Movement, uh, freedom movements in Hungary. And in fact, in our conversation a few years ago, third or fourth conversation, he described to me his objective, which was to help use the resources that he had accumulated in his life to promote open society, open discussion. And I said, how do you do that? And he said, let's go and fund intellectuals. Let's fund universities. Let's fund smart people. And they'll take care of everything else. Huh. Sounds just like that movie. But it also sounds like Jeffrey Epstein. Wasn't he doing that while gaining blackmail? All he did was fund intellectuals, fund universities. Remember that article I wrote months and months ago with really exclusive pictures with Epstein and how he landed in a base in Japan? Yeah, I broke that story months and months ago. And remember right after my months and months ago article that I published that was so detailed, Harvard started to fire people, MIT started to fire people. That was just the tip of the iceberg. Wait till we get into the research, the transhumanism, the experimentations. Remember, I told you about the children yesterday. That was a very important episode for you guys to understand. While people think it's all about just depopulation, it's not. It's the first step. You don't depopulate billions of people just like that. You've got to condition them. You've got to break society down. And how do you do it? By creating an open society. And then once open society collapses, people will beg for structure, even if it's tyrannical, even if it's immoral, because that's when survival kicks in. I mean, look at all the rights we forfeited the minute 9-11 happened and the deep state got to save their skin right before their debt was called in by the crown. And indeed, he replicated that model around the world. So in more recent times, George has started to work on what he sees as the role of the United States, the U.S. presidency, 
and the political climate, not just in the United States, but about terrorism, which has resulted in this remarkable new book, The Age of Infallibility. The Age of Fallibility, excuse me. Uh, infallibility is the, is the other side, I guess. So, I guess with that, we should say welcome to Google. Thank you, thank you. I have to go as a very nice introduction and I appreciate it. I think that my role in the financial markets you've exaggerated because I did not invent hedge funds and I know really quite not enough about derivatives and so on. So and I just want to say I met George Soros five years before that interview. Actually, it was um, five years and two days after that interview was published. So, uh, d before that. And so, that's pretty bizarre. This man, yeah, he didn't invent hedge funds. He's going to tell you some sob story. But he was a very, very good, uh, he has a very high emotional, IQ, emotional intelligence IQ. That is something that either very nefarious persons have. Usually, psychologists will um, see that in sociopaths. Now, you'll say, what's a sociopath? It's someone that mimics... Um, mimics how they feel and how they should feel because it's the right thing to do and society will respond to that, but um, doesn't really feel it. So listen to his response with that in mind. So uh, um, since four of the smartest and top people who manage that entire industry were hired, nurtured, and promoted by you, I think your, your credit is due. Um, but, but in any case, congratulations on your tremendous success. May I, let me ask you a topic that's bothering me to get us started. Um, and let me observe what I, what I read in the press today. Um, in Iraq, there are a lot of evidence that there's an emerging civil war. Um, it's been well, well, relatively well established that the original justification for the invasion of Iraq was, was not supported by the evidence. Okay, so listen, that's the CEO of Google talking about war in Iraq in politics. We now have a very, very difficult ongoing battle between um, Lebanon and a, and a set of people who are generally agreed to as terrorists and Israel, and, and there's a great debate as to the tactics there. How did we get here? Wait a minute. Did you see the anti-Semitism coming out? I just wanted to point that out. What did we do wrong, and what caused all of this? That's a very good question because the situation really is very serious and deteriorating at, at a rather fast pace. Uh, and and uh, what started out as a uh, false metaphor, the war on terror, uh, which was a, an expression applied to a, an, an abstraction uh, have actually had this unintended, I think largely unintended, adverse consequence of actually becoming now a real war. And the United States, that was at the time the most powerful nation on earth, it still is in a way, uh, but it dominated the world's agenda and set the agenda for the world that the rest of the world had to respond to. In response to 
declared war on terror. And that set the agenda for the world. For the world. And now we have a real war. So it's amazing how, I mean, this, in a way, it's a backward way of getting into my book. In the book, I start with a, with a philosophy, a conceptual framework, uh, where I... Uh, I just wanted to say, um, <clears throat> this will be part of a bigger report. I'm going to stop that there because there's so much more you need to hear him from Charlie Rose from like 11 years ago as well and whatnot. But he said that 9-11 actually put the framework in for the world. We've got terrorism. We've got a common fight so that unites it. It's kind of like this. Think about it this way. Say right now at this moment, aliens are coming down and they're shooting. They're just shooting. And you walk out onto the street with your rifle or with your mop because, you know, you don't believe in guns. And suddenly aliens are standing right in front of your house. Your neighbors are out and you hate your neighbor. That neighbor, you know, throws trash over his fence. You know, he leaves his window open when he gets dressed. You can't stand him. And then the aliens come and they start shooting. Will you and your neighbor unify? Of course. Will you forget every malice? Of course. Will you unite in a common cause? Of course. Because that is what survival is about. Because at that point, you have a common enemy, so you can unite people under that common enemy. Now, once you have people under that common enemy, this is strategy that Alexander the Great did. But here's where they mess up. And I go back to the first hour of the show. That they need to know everybody. See, that's the difference between the good guys and the bad guys. If I'm on Team Freedom, Team Human, Team Liberty, I don't need to know that Joe on the other side of the planet is working as well toward that common goal. Because it doesn't matter who does it it's, and who gets credit for it. It's just that it's done. Evil people love credit because that's power. That's, you know, something innate to humans, though. I mean, I love getting pat on the back, don't you? I mean, that's just a thing we have. But when it's for good, you kind of dismiss it. Even though it creeps up on you sometimes, you're like, damn it, I wish somebody would have given me like a cookie or said, hey, great job. You know, because it's, it's, an, it's an ego thing. This is where their ego got the best of them. This is how they failed, because they unified us under one enemy. They told you it. And here's Google again, uh, you know, not, messling, not meddling in politics, right? <laughs> but that's what unified us, uh, talking about it. Here's where they're glorifying it. I want you guys to listen to the Charlie Rose interview. It's two minutes long uh, for this clip. Super important. Take a listen. If you look at what's being done today by the Federal Reserve... Hmm by lowering interest rates, mm. by guaranteeing loans to bail out Bear Stearns, mm. uh, if you look at the stimulus package, and if you look at the regulations announced mm. by Secretary Paulson, are any of those measures the right direction? Yes, the fiscal stimulation, bailing out Bear Stearns, all those things are right. Because the, of confidence or because it changes no, the buying habits? No, because it is the, the job of the, of the Federal Reserve n to, to not to allow the financial system to collapse. That's what every central bank is supposed to do. That, that's, what, that's their job. And they did their job. But you see that... 
wait a minute, how is it their job? I didn't know that I can open up a bank or, you know, I actually worked at Bear Stearns. I was um, an intern <laughs> at one point. Think, why do we need to bail out people that are sloppy? Why, if you decide today to open up a bank and you distribute money, you give all this money for mortgages, and then someone calls in your chip and you're like, yeah, I can't do it. Why would my federal taxpayer dollars, why would my federal reserve, which is, by the way, a private company, let's be honest, but it uses our money, bail them out? I don't see why. You failed. You collapsed the market. You should be held accountable, and all your investors should be accountable because all your investors are other banks. And other banks behind them. And other banks behind them. Let's be honest, guys. It's not their job. It's down to credibility. You know, when they opened up banks at first, it was a guy with a lot of money. And he said, you know, I have a lot of money. I'll lend it out. Here's a note. Pay me back. Now, if he was irresponsible and the guy didn't pay him back, I mean, he could, you know, cap his knees, right? Um, but as society evolved, it went super different. If he was irresponsible and lent out money to someone that can't pay back, he, he was just SOL, right? He just lost that money. But now, it's like we'll take from everyone to pay it? Hmm. It means that they had to intervene. Right? And so the, the error was not to recognize that if you are in the credit creation business, then you need that protection. And if you need that protection, then you need to be regulated so that that the, the, you avoid the bubble from developing where you where the Fed has to come in. Uh, There's no bubble developing if you're sensible about it. Like, think of it this way. How many of you out there have lent money to a friend or a relative? I'm sure a lot of you. I have. Everybody has at some point in their life. Some of us have lost that money. They haven't come back with it. They couldn't do it. Circumstances change, and you're like, you know what? I did it. I knew there was a risk. I'm fine with it. But I'll tell you what. Out of the mm, numerous times that I've lent money, every single time I would go into it, I knew exactly what the outcome would be if someone would actually pay me back. Because I knew, like, for example, I had a, I had a friend who was going through, I mean, so much, paying for her son's therapies, um, you know, doing all these things. And I didn't even have much money. But I still lent the money and I got it back because I knew that the person just needed a breather. They needed to be able to buy the medication. They needed a little bit of help so that way they can get back on track. Because when you have a sick child, it's really hard for you to work. It's really, you know, full time. You have to go to appointments. But with the sick child that you have to look after them and then you cut back your work, right? You still got to pay for the medication. So this is those types of people that you would give back to and help and give a leg up to. Banks, on the other hand, give freely because they have what George Soros calls a protection, and that protection is your money. <laughs> Interesting, right? It's the job of the Fed to prevent asset bubbles from, from uh, developing. But that task has not been accepted. Are you optimistic about anything? Oh, yes. I mean, I'm generally speaking optimistic <laughs> because, because the fact that, uh, let's say, uh, this system proved to be imperfect, you know, it's natural because all human constructs are imperfect. That's the 
sort of the fundamental theory. And therefore, the big mistake you make is you think that just because socialism failed and government intervention in the economy Here failed, we go. therefore markets are perfect. Okay, so you heard that, right? Oh, just because this failed and that failed, that the markets are, you know, perfect or they're fixing themselves. Well, hmm. I'm going to play you a little promo clip from CNN Business, George Soros, in 87 seconds. Hedge fund legend, billionaire philanthropist, often described as a bleeding heart liberal. George Soros was born in 1930 to a Jewish family in Budapest, Hungary. When the Nazis invaded, they hid to survive. After the war, George went to the London School of Economics. He moved to the United States and eventually started his own hedge fund. But he didn't get really famous until 1992. That's when he bet $10 billion against the British pound. The gamble made him a billion dollars in just one day. And it earned him a nickname, the man who broke the Bank of England. These days, George is more focused on philanthropy. He has a foundation promoting democracy around the world. And he's a big supporter of left-wing causes. He's been pushing for the legalization of pot for two decades. He's also given millions to Democrats and railed against the other side. If we re-elect Bush in 2004, we endorse the Bush doctrine, and we will have to live with the consequences. That's made him a sworn enemy of the right, but George is so rich, he can pretty much do whatever he wants. And that's George Soros in 82 seconds. Ooh, CNN loves George Soros. There's more puff pieces by CNN, by the way. Uh, tons of them that, um, you know, you can find. Uh, for now, I wanted to also play how BBC, <clears throat> well, this is 2018, let's not jump ahead. Uh, that was uh, the the CNN clip from 2013 and 2015. They replayed it. Um, I want you guys to understand who this man really is. So you can see what I see. How I see a man who's created something called the Open Society, the OSF, symbolism will always be their downfall and how he promotes democracy and I want you then to go to the USAID website USAID and again every USAID site we have is to what promote democratic values it's almost like a photocopy of the Open Society Foundation I mean after all USAID funds Open Society trying to improve the world is more difficult than making money. You can only measure it if you have a strategy. I set up a foundation to promote uh, this idea of an open society. Opening up closed societies, making open societies function better, and foster a critical mode of thinking. Combining informed reasoning this guy is um, uh, Dr. Sen from Harvard University. Surprising. Which an informed understanding of what is needed in the world to change the lives of people. George Soros is a spectacular example of that combination. He's very suspicious of conventional wisdom. This is Leon Botstein. Uh, he's the president of Bard College and he's on the global board of Open Society. So he's a person who likes to argue. He likes to take the counterfactual position. 
like to take the counterintuitive position. He actually thinks for himself, and he's always self-critical. I know that I don't know all the answers. Whatever frame I create is bound to be biased or uh, incomplete or, or distorted. The important thing is to be aware and to try to minimize the damage. He's a giant. That's uh, Bono, an artist and an activist. He walks very small, careful steps. So people don't hear him going, boom, boom, boom. Actually, I think he's quite shy. That, you know. Oh, so he's telling you that he's light-footed and comes out of nowhere. Because that's exactly what he does. By creating an open society, you give the illusion to people that they are free. You give the illusion to people that they are making decisions when in fact you are enslaving them with invisible chains that will only manifest when they demand to have chains. When people demand structure. Because out of chaos comes order. So you must create chaos in order to have order. That's the way it is. There's no middle ground always. If you are born in order, you want chaos because you feel restricted. If you are in chaos, you demand order. And at whatever cost, dependent on the excessive chaos or the type of chaos that's presented to you. So imagine living in a society where nothing has boundaries. Science is not applied. Religion doesn't exist, right? The only thing you see is, um, I would say, tangible consumer goods that you want. And the more you strive for it, the more they pull it away. Kind of like that commercial where that guy with the fisherman pants was at State Farm where he had the dollar and he's like, oh, you almost got it. That's exactly what they want to do. And at that point, <laughs> you get frustrated and you're like, what do you want? to make me feel better. What do you want? Tell me, do you want my right to choose a job? Assign me one, because I don't like to live like this. This is exactly what intellectuals find. Intellectuals, people that are smart, look down on other people, regardless, because they can't think like them. They're not as smart as them. They don't belong here because they are a parasite. And unfortunately, people don't see that. They don't see how they're condescending and how they are influencing their ideologies to align with theirs to put themselves in that position. No one can make you feel small unless you let them. No matter, even if you don't have two pennies to rub together, no one should ever make you feel small. Because at the, at the end of the day, when you're both butt naked, you're both human beings at core. Intellectual power that he brings, he sees things from a, a very broad, systemic perspective. Uh, that's very unusual. People tend to feel that these coffee, problems that coffee and on. so huge. Leave it to the government, leave it to others. But George never has that attitude. George always feels he can make a difference, an individual can make a difference, and doesn't hesitate to try. As long as there are people like George Soros who make it possible for people out there. And this woman uh, chairs this organization called Girls Not Brides. Super feminist, super insane, Mabel. I mean, this woman is crazy. We have a vision of positive change to try to, to create that positive change. We're heading in the right direction. Everybody loves George Soros. Everybody talks about him like he's the best man, you know, that you can ever meet. It's interesting how this man pops up in everything that causes turmoil across the planet. 
and you know no one seems to understand um, what is really going on. I'm going to play a clip from CNN where they're debunking the myths surrounding George Soros. This is from 2018. I mean, they're funded by him, so why not? Who is George Soros, and why do Republicans find him so scary? There's only one man who can answer that question. Let's get a reality check with senior political analyst John Avalon. Hi, John. Hey, Allie. So it's getting near Halloween, so I want to start by trying to scare you. Okay, ready? George Soros. Does that spook you? Well, if you're on the far right, it might. The 88-year-old liberal billionaire has been a bogeyman for fringe groups for a long time. But lately... Fringe groups? So now you're a fringe group. Conspiracy theories about Soros have moved from the outer reaches of politics to the highest reaches of government. Earlier this month, President Trump accused Soros of funding anti-Kavanaugh protesters. That's true. Last week, Congressman Matt Gates accused him of funding the migrant caravan. That's true. A baseless claim made even more explicitly by a top Republican Senate aide-turns-lobbyist, Kelly Johnston. Yeah, she said, open society planned and is executing this. Yes, it's true. Remember how the caravan stopped the minute we stopped USAID? Because that is how he uses the money. Guys, I wrote this very stigmatographic three-piece on ToriSays.com called uh, Russia Gate or Russia Hoax. Uh, I I retweeted a picture because in the third part, I talked about Brennan and his little company in Luxembourg where me and him had our showdown and last met. I'm going to tell you that in there, you will see everything you need to understand it. It's um, just a lot of information, but it all leads back to this. USAID is the funder for open society. And if you look at their budgets, and don't take my word for it, you know, put in USAID audit, you know, State Department USAID audit. Why does the State Department fund them? Why are we promoting democratic values? What does that mean? Why are we giving money to nations to promote democratic? What if they don't want to be democratic? It's none of our business what they do. But we're funding them. Who is taking that money? It's the open society. Now, that's not all. Congressman Paul Gosar even blamed Soros for the violence at the white nationalist rally in Charlottesville. Now, these kinds of facts... Um, yeah, because he funded them through open society. Three accusations find fertile ground because they build on years of conspiracy theories. For some, Soros' name has become code for old anti-Semitic tropes, often cloaked in debates over globalization. Ethno-nationalist autocrats like Viktor Orban in Soros' native Hungary used posters of him to fuel anti-immigrant fervor in an election campaign. That's because, again, here's the plan. And, you know, simplicity, right, breaking things down to the core is important. How do you destroy a society? You collapse the infrastructure. How do you collapse our infrastructure in the United States, or Hungary's for that matter? huge influx of migrants, illegal migrants that are broke, that are hungry. Why did, why did Broward County refuse? Why did they panic when President Trump said, all right, we're going to be sending you two buses a week with illegal migrants from the border. Take care of them. They're like, no, we can't. We don't have social security funds. We don't have housing. He's like, I don't care. You think the people at Texas are prepared for this? Take them. And they made this whole stink, and it was covered up by the media, remember, where the mayor came out and said, nope, we're going to refuse the buses. Wait a minute. Aren't you the one 
protesting, you know, Debbie Washerman Stoltz and all these other clowns in Broward County to bring them into the United States with your bleeding hearts? Why won't you take them? Because it will collapse their community. If I take a bus and I drop off 100 people in your neighborhood right now that have no food, no money, no house, what's going to happen? First of all, crime. Because they're going to be like, I can't stay on the street. I'm going to be cold. I have children. Look, my kid, their, their boogers are running. They go to a hotel, one, you know, bleeding heart hotel. Okay, fine. I'll house you. Another one comes. I'll house you. Then what? Then what? You do it for one day, two days, and then what? society collapses that is the plan because if you collapse society imagine being in a neighborhood overrun by just just your neighborhood think about your little little neighborhood just you know a 20 block radius okay think about it and i drop off 500 illegal migrants 500 in a 20 block radius how quick will you collapse they have no money no shelter no food no clothing no health care how quick will i drain your community super quick Give it a couple of days and they'll be broken in homes, people getting raped, people getting killed and beaten for wallets and phones and whatever else they can because they can't work. They just arrived. And so open society, that's the key. Migration, opening your borders, opening your arms. Yet if you stop one of these liberal idiots on the street and say, you want them? Why don't you go to the border and adopt one and bring them into the house and, you know, buy them clothes, feed them, house them, give them health care? Uh, yeah, no, why not? I mean, you're saying that I should do it, that everybody should share that cost. Uh, did you think about it? Because if we take that cost, how are we going to survive as a nation when we can't even provide it for our own people, for our own veterans? This is how you collapse society. Because if I did drop off 500 in your neighborhood and all of this is happening, you turn around and say, Tori, make a stop. I, I can't go out and just even put my trash bag out in the front for the garbage man. And the garbage man won't come get it because he's worried he's going to get mugged or killed for, you know, a piece of chewing gum in his pocket. Help me. Oh, well, to do that, uh, you're going to have to pay more taxes. How much do you need? You need 50% to go, I'll do it as long as my family is safe. Yeah, but then you're going to have to have a curfew, and um, I'm going to give you a job that will help better. Uh, and I might need that piece of land in the back. You know, your backyard's really long. I want that little piece so I can build something there, and other people can move in so it's a little bit more time. Whatever you want, just do it. Suddenly, <laughs> totalitarianism has come and landed. And you have just given me power to do as I please because I tell you that's the only solution because you can't find one because the government has collapsed. That is the idea. Not surprisingly, that graffiti over his head there, that's an anti-Semitic slur. And of course, he's been the repeated target of Vladimir Putin. Now here at home, Donald Trump's campaign used Soros' image as part of its closing ad as a way to characterize a corrupt global elite. Soros has even made an appearance in at least one campaign ad this cycle approved by the Republican Congressional Committee. Look, trolls are going to troll. But when this toxic nonsense makes its way to Washington and the White House, it cries out for a reality. Wow. How do you feel about CNN with this? So, Soros may not be your cup of tea politically, but he was first known as an anti-communist trying to rebuild the wreckage left by the Soviet state through his Open Society Foundation. 
You mean he tried to ensure that the Ukraine would join in with the EU, and then with the help of our tax dollars and Obama's laws, we sent people there to fix their elections through CIDL and, you know, election software and permanent and temporary employees that you and I both paid for. In the U.S., Soros became notorious to some when he went all in for John Kerry against George W. Bush. Huh, really? He went all in for John Kerry. John Kerry that made buku dollars in the Ukraine. But, you know, you'll hear about that in a few months from the conservative media that report so timely. Back to Obama big time, but expressed disappointment when he couldn't get his phone calls returned by the president. This is not exactly the influence you'd expect from a man that Fox News once dubbed the puppet master. He's not the puppet master. There are plenty of corollaries to his big spending on the right. For example, Soros spent an estimated $25 million on the 2016 election. That's real money. Sheldon Adelson has already spent four times that to support Republicans in this year's midterms. What we've got here is selective outrage and situational ethics. The real problem is when political opponents become regarded as personal enemies, with strangers' fury fueled by conspiracy theories. And this can come at a cost. On Monday, an explosive device was sent to Soros' home in the New York suburbs. Now, it's a reminder that ideas can become actions. The demonization of people we disagree with can court dangerous forces if we are not careful. Wow, he's even shaking his finger as he's telling the audience this. Yet, they're okay when it happens to conservatives. They're okay when people walk in faces of children. They're okay when they use Baron Trump, right, the son of the president, a 13-year-old boy, in an open hearing for impeachment as an example. They're okay with all of that, but sending an explosive device to Soros' home? You know, that means that's a newly converted, you know, um, human from liberalism to, oh my gosh, what have I been doing this all this time? Because people that have common sense, people that understand what's going on, would never send explosive devices because, you know, that only destroys your message by acting insane. So <laughs> let's just take that as it is. Unhinged accusations rooted in anti-Semitic tropes should not be dismissed as play to the base entertainment. And responsibility is still a virtue that we should seek, especially in our elected officials who should know better. Yeah, they should know better. I mean, remember that interview with Google where they said, you know, Israel's not doing well and we have problems, you know, that anti-Semitic message. But, you know, George Soros is a great guy. Like, like who are you to say different? That is basically it. Now, here's George Soros just this year telling you the mission of Open Society Foundations, you know, that fund the Atlantic Council, that fund all these other organizations that we all find, these societies, these groups, these think tanks. Understanding Open Society is one thing. Trying to create Open Societies or strengthening Open Societies is something else. They have to evolve. They have to create themselves. And that process is a never-ending process. We're living in very anxious times. There's a lot of uncertainty in the world. People are afraid.
wait, that was Malunga, by the way, who's part of Open Societies, and he also happens to be on the board of the Clinton Foundation in Africa. Now we have Istvan Rev. He is the director of Open Society Archives and Open Society. He's on the board of Open Societies Global. And they want to hide behind closed borders. Societies are divided, and the spaces of contestation are becoming more explosive and, in some cases, violent. People are questioning the rationality. People are questioning. So, this guy is Indian, Hari Sharma. He's the executive director for social dialogue in Nepal. In the established institutions and norms. There's an onslaught, not just on immigrants' rights. Oh, and that um, Indian was also one of the directors of Allianz Global, an insurance company. And now we have the ACLU, Anthony Romero, talking. But on Muslim rights, on reproductive rights, on LGBT rights, this endless war on terror, the migration crisis, all of that is distorting democratic practice in the world. We've got enemies, open society and its enemies. We are, as the Open Society Foundation, part of a network who support a set of values and a set of principles and a set of ideas. This vision of an open and humane society. Okay, so this woman speaking is Sherilyn Ifell. She's the president and director of council, and she's also the NAACP Legal Defense and Educational Fund. So she decides which African Americans, uh, you know, get money and which don't. Society, a society in which everybody's full potential is a Oh, and this is Maburu Gitu, the executive director of Open Society Initiative for Eastern Africa. And by the way, he is also on the board for the, guess what? Yeah, Clinton Foundation in Africa and the Obama for Africa that was just launched uh, in July. <laughs> Look at how these people are all on all these boards. Human being is realized. A belief in the right of every individual to have certain levels of dignity, including freedom. The freedom of expression. The freedom of assembly and association. Okay, so now we have Madawiya Rashid. She's the professor at the London School of Economics, and she's an Open Society Fellow. But here's the kicker. There's someone else coming along that's even more insane on where they sit. Freedom of movement. The right to protest. Voting rights. So now we have UN people sitting on the boards, co-founders of Supermajority Voting Rights. This is Cecil Richard. She's the co-founder of Supermajority Voting Rights. Oh, and did I mention that they work with Saito? Oh, did I mention that they also work with CrowdStrike? Oh, and wait a minute, Google. <laughs> it's so interesting to see Open Society Foundation telling you exactly who they are right under your nose, and you'd be none the wiser. A free judiciary, equal justice and transparency and fairness, and a government that is held accountable by its people. And at the very heart of the idea of open society is that people can disagree, but they can still recognize the greater goal of being able to live in mutual respect, in peace. OSF provides an opportunity to question power, to hold power to account, but the, the complexity of the fight is that power fights back. Even though we are faced with seemingly intractable problems, we need the courage to step into this moment to take up this challenge. If not us, then whom? In order to have an open society, you have to mediate the tension between equality. And that's Alexander Soros. You know, the guy that you saw with Chuck Schumer sitting at a table, pictures been going around, where they had nice burner phones <laughs> right next to them. Burner phones. You would think with all the money they have, they'd have the latest phone and liberty, popular sovereignty, 
and individual freedom is a difficult task. The philosophy of open society is very much to work with people on the ground who have that energy, who are doing the work, and know the environment where they're operating. Local Okay, so it's here are the key areas of focus for the Open Society Foundation. Democratic practice, early childhood ed and education, economic governance and advancement, equality and anti-discrimination, health and rights, higher education, human rights movement and institution, information and digital rights journalism, justice reform and the rule of law. You know, that justice reform we did in the Ukraine when they were getting elections, right? And here's the thing. About three of these people on this little clip from the Open Society were actually on the boards of Jeffrey Epstein's developmental, no, what is it? The cognitive um, experiment that he was running at the Horn of Africa in Ethiopia. That is going to be one stellar show but we're not ready for that. That should come later in 2020, because as we unseal Epstein, more will be coming forward. Advisors, local activists, they have the agency and the authority to be change agents in their country. We are asking people to mobilize themselves. We need to provide the tools. Now, we're seeing the individual as part of a community of thinkers, of activists, writers, journalists, artists. We're at a moment now where people's very lives are on the line. You need healthy institutions and civil society. You need them to be well run. The major grantees are the Central European University, Drug Policy Alliance, European Council on Foreign Relations, Global Witness, Helsinki Committees, Human Rights Watch, International Crisis Group, Institute for New Economic Thinking, and the Roma Education Fund. Oh, wait a minute. Before the Pope resigns, um, wasn't he like talking that up? right before he announced that he's resigning, Roma Education Fund. No matter which country you're in, you will find a remarkable group of courageous people speaking out against violations of rights. They are the voices we seek to support. The only thing that matters is your passion for genuine change, how the world should be. The foundation does more than fund projects. With so I'm going to stop that right there because we have like three minutes left. So it's what the world should be because they know better. So they want drug policy reform, early childhood development, international justice. So they want an international justice system in place. LGBTI rights. Never seen the I. What do you think? Mass incarceration, natural resource revenue, sex worker rights, civil rights for Roma. Roma, oh dear, we need to do a whole show on that one as the Pope's resignation nears and women's rights. Let me tell you something, okay? The way this is going is, is, is not a good way. And we are so lucky to have President Trump come in and throw a wrench right into it. Soros is not the puppet master. He is the public-facing guy. Remember how I told you the Ukrainians were against Europe because there's lawmakers that are making laws? Nigel Farage made a whole speech back in 2015 in Parliament in Europe talking about that. I don't even know who's making these laws. I'll tell you what. Do you know in France that your kid must be registered in an early childhood uh, you know, um, institution for preschool by a certain age? Do you know why? Because that is where they go. They start at the young age. So when someone tells you George Soros is big, bad, and ugly, yeah, he is. But he's not the puppet master. God bless. I'll see you all tomorrow, same time, same place.